Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, hello. From sunny Dorchester. Okay, this is going to be a slightly unconventional show this week. Because of the pandemic, there's been a bit of a wedding backlog, which is unwinding itself gradually. So this is my third wedding uh, in a row. But but we are carrying on the show. All I would say is, just two quick caveats, the Wi-Fi is not necessarily going to be the best possible quality on offer, but I think it's okay. I think we're getting there. There's some kids running around. There might be child-related chaos. That's all I'm saying. So what I'm going to do is keep this bit to a minimum, and we're going to try and crack on with the show straight away. We're, of course, talking about those... I'm sure you've seen it on social media or indeed your local supermarket, which is the supply chain crisis. Or is it a crisis? How big is the crisis? What is the crisis? That's what we've got two brilliant expert guests to tell us all about today. Um, we're very lucky to be joined by Sam, Lau and, uh, Sam Lowe and Dmitry uh, Grzybinski, uh, two fantastic experts who will tell us exactly what's happening, what the crisis is, how much it's linked to the Brexit uh, deal, uh, the pandemic, etc., etc. We'll go into the nitty-gritty. It will be great. Um, Just a quick, as ever, housewarming. If you're watching this live, please click through to the YouTube and press like and subscribe so you get these videos uh, sent to you. Um, If you're listening on the podcast, great. Also subscribe and leave us a review if you're feeling well inclined. For those supporting us doing all the documentaries, we've got loads of documentaries coming up, including Who Owns Britain. We're going to Labour and Tory Conference, which is something of a tradition. You support the team doing that on their union wages uh, on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. You can also support the show using Super Chat. Just click uh, to ask questions to our esteemed guests and they will answer them. Now, that's enough for me. We're going to bring them both in now. We're very lucky to be joined by Sam Lowe and Dmitry Kuzminski, as I say. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Hello. So, okay, let's just start with this. Now, there is a bit of debate going on social media when I've posted this on Facebook and so on. Some people are very adamant that there is a shortage of, in their, you know, I've had specialist dog food uh, suggested, uh, bottled water. I mean, Coca-Cola have become the latest business to say that there is a shortage of aluminium cans hitting supply. So I suppose I'd ask you both, firstly, how big is this actual crisis? Is there, because there is, you know, people's perception of what is real in the Brexit uh, drama over the last few years, it, it varies depending on the tribe you're aligned to. So do you want to just start, either of you, how, how, how big a problem is this? Um, Sam? Yes, sure. Look, there are some shortages of different food products at at any given time. I've experienced it in my weekly shop when I was in Cornwall uh, last week, uh, or was it the week before? uh, Time, 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 time seems quite static at the moment. Uh, The the shop there was low on bottled water, low on beer, low on fresh fruit and vegetables at different points of the week. There are shortages. I don't think anyone's going to starve 
it, it seems to be quite random. It seems to be jumping around different products at different times. So you, you might have a lot of one thing one week, not so much of it the next. But yes, yeah, so there are certainly some shortages in place. And as to why that's happening, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a range. There's lots of different issues. There's issues around a shortage of lorry drivers, which has been provoked by the pandemic and Brexit, but is also a more structural issue around the fact it's a really horrible job that's not particularly well paid and lots of people don't want to do it. <laughs> so, so, so there's that. And also just uh, people being a bit unsure as to how much people are going to want to buy at any given time. So supply chain managers are struggling to predict supply and demand. Yeah, if Dimitri, I can go just, for it. sorry, go for it. Yeah, if I could just jump in there. I mean, I think sort of this chart, I hope this works. This chart kind of shows that all this is from uh, the C uh, New Statesman, I think, did this, but it's from CBI data, the Confederation of Bis British Industry. And it kind of shows how much stock firms had, both in distribution and retail, versus how much they expected to sell. And for the first time in like recorded history, they're at a negative. So there is certainly a problem in getting stuff onto shelves. And as Sam said, it's like it's a very, very complex problem that I think at its heart is that shortage of drivers for big vehicles. This isn't just lorries. Uh, it's now being reported in coaches. And there's a lot of different causes for that. Um, but it, it's certainly there. People aren't imagining it. Um, now, as Sam said, are you likely to starve to death next week? because the supermarket is literally empty, no. But the fact that, you know, there are shortages of the NHS is reporting a shortage of vials and things, there are real supply chain issues that can, can really hurt people. And it's a crisis that doesn't look like it has a natural fix next week. Yeah, do you want to just start in terms of freedom of movement, for example? Mm -hmm. talk, talk about how freedom of movement impacts on this. Who wants to start? Sam. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so one of the issues around the shortage of uh, lorry drivers or, or drivers of, of, of big vehicles is that we had a pandemic. Lots of people decided to go home. And also combined with that, the UK introduced a new arrangement with the European Union that got rid of free boomed people. So it made it more difficult for foreign workers to continue working in the United Kingdom. And lots of those drivers of these heavy vehicles were from the continent you know there are lots of them they largely get you know they, they're largely uh, put as being from eastern europe and they haven't come back so all of a sudden shortages right and that combined with some of the things we discussed that they've not been able to retrain new drivers you've had people retiring the fact that there was already a shortage of drivers before all of this has has, has caused some quite significant problems and, and and obviously there's quite there are theoretically some quite simple solutions here as at the maximalist level you could reinstate freedom of movement and hopefully that would lead to these drivers returning. As a, as a slightly less maximalist uh, approach, you could you could, you could uh, introduce a new visa scheme that encouraged that made it easier for these foreign workers to to come to the UK and work. Then there's also potentially domestic solutions, which is to improve working conditions, improve pay, and the like. But none of this is easy, and there's a sort of fixed cost to all of this because once people have left, you know, are they going to come back? They've sort of already made a big decision. Are they going to? going to reverse that maybe training new people takes a long time the, the working conditions in this job i mean even if you make it really good and you pay it really well it's still not a very nice job i still wouldn't want to do it you're on the road for 12 hours a day you're sleeping in laybys eating in laybys and doing pretty much everything else in laybys it's it's not that attractive so so it's, it's not a 
problem that has an immediately obvious solution, although there are certainly lots of things you could do to chip away at the edges. Yeah, I, Dimitri, I, go, go for it, go for it. I, I mean, just to kind of expand on that, and it really was this slow-burning crisis um, that Brexit and the pandemic threw into overdrive, but it's been happening for a long time. I think the New York Times reported that only 2% of HG of uh, heavy goods vehicle drivers are under 25. So this is an aging group of people. Young people don't want to go into this career. But what Brexit did was kind of a couple of things all at once. First of all, as, as Sam was saying, people left. And now even if the government were to open up visa schemes, now in order to do this job, you have to deal with the home office. The scheme. Uh, and, <laughs> Well, I mean, just generally, you have to interact with the Home Office. And, and as a foreigner to, in, to your great country, let me tell you that there is almost nothing I would do to, that I wouldn't do to avoid dealing with the Home Office on anything. So now there's a whole ton of bureaucracy. Secondly, when uh, Brexit started, when sort of the referendum happened, the pound absolutely tanked, for example, against the, the Polish Zloty, right? So you can see it there. So what you had was for a long time, the UK was kind of practicing this currency arbitrage where the wages weren't great and the conditions were pretty bad. But if you were in Eastern Europe, which has much lower um, cost of living, you could go over to the UK, you could do these jobs and you could send back money to, to your family and then take it back with you. And it kind of worked out. Here, that drop in the pound was like a 20% pay cut in three months. So it became much, much less attractive. That's reversed itself now, but as Sam said, people left. And finally, and I think this is worth saying, the borders between the UK and EU became a lot more annoying to cross in terms of paperwork. And while that hits businesses in terms of costs, in practice, it's the driver that's carrying those documents. It's the driver that has to effectively interact with the customs officials. And it's the driver that gets parked for eight hours in a parking lot while like customs and the business and the freight forwarder try to sort out some discrepancy on page 36 of the Rules of Origin Declaration. So this all hit drivers and it made it much, much less attractive. And it, as Sam said, it wasn't that attractive to begin with. So all of that contributed. And it is interesting to note that we we aren't hearing stories of these sorts of shortages on, 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 on in continental Europe, so within the EU. But also, we're not anecdotally hearing of these shortages in Northern Ireland either, which is which is quite fascinating because Northern Ireland has a slightly different relationship with the EU than the rest of the UK does. However, you are getting these shortages in the US, so these HGV shortages that they're happening there as well, and it's because there's some quite similar structural factors there around it not being a very attractive career, not being very well paid. The population retiring, and also some of the blame has been put on the COVID relief, which is uh, which has has essentially paid these people more to not do anything than uh, than to continue working in this in this fairly unappealing sector. So, so it makes it very hard to draw very strict conclusions, but I do think we can say for sure that Brexit is a part of this discussion, even if it's not the whole of it. Before I ask a bit more about the the whole paperwork stuff. I mean, isn't this a lot of people listening will think, well, it's not a shortage of labor that's the problem. It's, it's, it is, as you keep pointing out, it's badly paid, increase the wages, mm -hmm. and then more people will 
will apply for those jobs and then the, the crisis will be over. How, how much would you need to be paid to do it, Owen? Oh, I'm going to stop bargaining right here, right now. Right, yeah, Interesting. So... <laughs> but I mean, but the, the, I mean, this is increasing the bargaining power, isn't it? In yeah. theory of, of, of yes. unions representing also, those lorry drivers. Yes, and I think that will happen. We've already seen pay increases for mm. the drivers in that. But we should also mention it is a very skilled sector. It's actually really hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not a job, you know, you might be tempted to go and do it if, 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 if the wages go up or not, but there still are quite a few hurdles. It's a skilled job. Um, it's also, so it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to keep a YouTube show uh, live from Dorchester. So probably, <laughs> probably we'll struggle with that. Go. So, but, but, but it's also, it's also like, it's, it's a skilled job in that you need to be skilled to do it, but you also need to be qualified to do it, like formally qualified. These are like, you know, these things carry 40 tons or whatever. These are gigantic death machines that cruise along at speeds of 100 kilometers an hour. So 60, the government- 60 miles per hour. 60 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Some, uh, whatever you guys are using, the, the king's foot or whatever. Um, uh, so these things cruise along quite fast and it's a really hard job. So the government understandably doesn't, like, we can't just give you 50K, put you behind the wheel and say, off you pop. The government needs to test and certify you. Now, there's a shortage of, by some reports, 100,000 drivers. Last year, because of COVID, they couldn't do the 40,000 tests they normally do every year. But then, so there's like that natural bottleneck where like you increase wages, but the only ones you can attract by increasing wages is you can attract people who happen to have this kind of license. Or you can attract more people to begin working through the process of getting that kind of license, which takes many months, is quite expensive, and you don't really know if you want to or can do the job until you've got this qualification. So even if you qualify 40,000 people a year, not all 40,000 of those people are going to find that they can do this job in the medium term. So it's not as simple as everybody just offering more money and suddenly this problem is solved tomorrow. Explain a bit more about the paperwork, because one of the great arguments a lot of those who supported Brexit made was a bonfire of red tape of regulation imposed at EU level. What, what's actually? Well, there you go. But you've answered it. You've answered it very succinctly, both of you already. So tell, tell me, tell me what's actually happened in practical terms. Who has to go on that, Sam? Uh, yeah. I mean, so, 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 so when it comes to crossing, uh, getting goods across borders, and also people across borders, there's just so much more paperwork in terms of so, so, if, so, so just to give a sort of run through say you want to export uh, a product of animal origin to the eu so that's let's say say some lamb you need to get an export health certificate you need to notify uh the importer needs to notify the border inspection post it needs to be presented as a border inspection post by a, a, a certified person on the ground it's then subject to document checks identity checks and, and physical inspection. That's just on the regulatory side. On the customs side, you'll have to have submitted uh, a, a, an export declaration, import declaration. If you want to claim tariff-free trade, you're also going to have to have gone through the rules of origin formalities. They'll have to be presented on the ground. You also have had to have labelled your product uh, with the address of the person importing it into the EU. These are all things that didn't have to happen before. Uh, Brexit equals red tape, at least in respect of cross-border trade. Now, of course, you can argue uh, in the round that this could be offset by the UK slashing red tape in other areas, but but that hasn't happened as of yet. Yeah, I mean, 
fundamentally what Brexit, or at least this version of Brexit, did was introduce a border where there was no border before. When governments like to know what is entering into their territory for commercial purposes, understandably, um, big part of, you know, taking back control or whatever. Um, So if you are driving a lorry full of goods to uh, across into any country, but across into the into France, into the European Union, uh, you need to tell the government of France absolutely everything that is in your lorry. What is the? You need to classify it by what customs code it is, which is an entire industry in of itself. You need to work out how much tariffs you would be paying on it um, if. Uh, if the free trade agreement wasn't in place. And then if you if there would be tariffs and you decide to use the free trade agreement, you need to also certify absolutely everywhere where each of those products, how it was made to prove that it is British enough to benefit from the free trade agreement. All of this is a mountain of paperwork that simply did not exist. The days of being able to load up a van with commercial goods from London and have it just belt across it and be in Berlin by sort of the end of the drive time are over. And a lot of that, as I said, falls on the driver because the driver is the one kind of carrying this paper and he's carrying the goods or she's carrying the goods. She arrives at that point. She hands over the paperwork. The customs officials look at it. And if they detect any kind of problem, the truck doesn't move anymore. The truck effectively stops while that gets sorted out, which can take hours. It's out of the driver's hand. The driver's not going to sit there reclassifying goods between customs codes. So instead, it's sort of people are calling around, you know, getting people out of bed, working out what's going on. Meanwhile, the truck isn't moving. And if the truck isn't moving, that means it's not making deliveries, which kind of adds costs. And this person, this poor driver is stuck in a parking lot at Calais. It's, it, it's really, I mean, the drivers are really at the pointy end of this though the costs are falling on business, it's the drivers who get to experience these joys firsthand. And the thing to say about the border at the moment is it's quite asymmetric in that the European Union is applying its full third country controls on goods entering from uh, Great Britain, again, Northern Ireland in a slightly different category. But the UK is in the process of phasing in uh, quite a few controls. So, for example, we're not applying the full border regime to products of animal origin entering the UK. That's going to start to be phased in from October with the need for paperwork and checks from January onwards, although I wouldn't be surprised if that gets pushed back again. We've also had uh, mechanisms in place that allow com- imp- uh, importers into the UK to defer the payment of customs duties where they apply and also defer the submission of declarations. We've been essentially prioritizing flow over all else when it comes to goods entering the UK, but that's not been the same going in the other direction. And you would presume over time that that will actually tighten. So so there's more to come. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, I should also just clarify to the person who's suggested I'm in the Dorchester. I'm not in the <laughs> Dorchester. I'm in Dorchester, just to avoid a very tedious exchange of emails with Guido Fawkes or something like that. Um, but what I have been asked, so to Juice Cantwell asks, what do the guests think will happen when the grace period ends so the UK has to apply paperwork to goods imported from the European Union? So that word has isn't actually a very useful one in that in that the UK has said it's going to impose new controls specifically on imported food products from October. But in practice, is there going to be a huge amount of enforcement? I doubt it. And then when it comes to actually 
uh, implementing the checks from January onwards, which is uh, quite arduous. It's the it's the document checks, the identity checks, the physical inspections at the port of entry. Again, it wouldn't surprise me if that gets pushed back because yeah. from a political perspective, why give yourself the hassle when you can just keep mm. kicking the can? And I actually have quite a lot of sympathy for this. I mean, I'd probably do the same thing if I was in charge. But but it does mean that sort of everyone waiting for this massive crunch point, it might not ever come, or at least not come in the way they suspect, because uh, at any given time, the government can just say, well, we probably just won't do that right now if it's going to cause us so much trouble. Every time the, government, every time the government consults with industry and effectively itself, so the customs officials, about sort of so you know we're due to we're due to implement this stuff in like a month how are we doing everybody starts screaming like everybody it's 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 like a, a it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting everybody freaks out because the customs systems aren't ready the IT systems aren't ready the customs officials aren't ready biz importers are incredibly unready um, and it sort of risks throwing a grenade into the supply chain. So, so every single time this comes close, the government's like, "Do we, do we really want to do this in order to kind of?" I know we have to at some point, but is this really the time for that news cycle? And then they kick it down the can for another few months. Um, and so this has been happening over and over and over again. Um, and as Sam says, it's very likely to get kicked again, especially given that there are already headlines about supermarkets running out of stuff before most of this paperwork becomes compulsory and truly onerous. How much warning, how long has the government basically been in a position where it should have known about these problems emerging? I mean, if I was to put my Tory apologist hat on, which I'm well known for wearing, uh, according to some comments on Twitter, I actually am. But, um, you know, there's been a pandemic. Come on. Le e ease up on these guys. It's been tough. They've got a tough job with the world collapsing around them. That's as much Tory apologism as an hour willing to do. But I mean, I mean, no, but seriously, I mean, like, how much warning? How, how prepared should they have been? But there's different questions there, because 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 I accept that the pandemic has created a huge amount of problems when it comes to the implementation of these new regimes and the new controls of the border. And as I said, I would actually do what the government is doing right now and delay a lot of these things. I don't. I think in terms of priorities, enforcing uh, uh, controls on food entering the UK probably isn't at the top right now. You know, it's something we do need to get to eventually. But I would I would prioritise flow over all else. But in terms of how long they've had to prepare for for this, from the moment. The British government says that it wanted to leave the EU's customs union and single market. These controls were a given. So we could put that to say, because Theresa May was always trying to sort of square the circle on this. Uh, but, but from the moment Boris Johnson was elected leader of the Conservative Party, won that election, from that moment onwards, we knew these controls were going to be put in place. And would need and we'd need to work on it. And they delayed and delayed and delayed because it was difficult to implement uh, controls, uh, the pre uh, preparation for controls at the border at a time when you're saying there will be no pain, there will be no friction. It took them a while to acknowledge that there would be friction, there would be pain, and then they changed the narrative and said, you know, to the friction and pain is worth it because the freedom we get to do differently uh, will more than adequately compensate. But there was a lot of foot dragging where there needn't have been. We could have been much further ahead in this process of preparation than we are now, in my, in my opinion. Uh, I think that there, there are a couple of things. As, as Sam said, I think, again, to put my Tory apologist hat on, which, you know, probably fits fits a little bit better than yours, 
uh, Owen, from more frequent use. Um, I think their argument was while Brexit was in doubt, so like while there was some theoretical, although sort of hard to imagine, path to reversing it, they, as Sam said, didn't want to admit downsides, um, which, you know, you can, in order to preserve democracy and the will of the people, you can make of that argument whatever you like, whether, you know, lying or omissions is worth doing that, but that's a different question. But I think for also for a long time, they played this weird game where they pretended that there was some path where a free trade agreement, the free trade agreement they would like to have with the European Union, would would mean that you wouldn't have to do this stuff. Um, and, and that's just, that's like, that's not, that's not what those do. Like, it's just fundamentally not what a free trade agreement is for or is capable of, but they want it, but they like to pretend that it was. And so in actuality, the first time you had really serious discussions about like, hey, business, you should get ready for this was, God, I don't know, like late 2019, 2020 sometime when, you know, in 2015, you could tell this was coming. And by 2017, it was, it was obvious. What are the kind of other impacts, I mean, of Brexit at the moment? Because, again, the pandemic has, you know, I mean, I remember before 2019, it was a case of Brexit was the big black hole and everything else was completely erased from political conversation, more or less. Mm -hmm. And obviously the pandemic being the biggest national emergency since World War II has kind of sucked the oxygen out of the room a bit. So I suppose what I'm asking is, what are the other kind of impacts that might be disguised? The kind of other economic impacts that people might not realise? Because I suppose it's actually quite difficult to have a rational conversation about the actual impacts of Brexit because there's this other thing going on at the same time. So what, what are the other things people might not have noticed? The big one that's disguised at the moment is the impact on the services industry in respect of people going to the EU to deliver that service in person. So be you a consultant, a legal advisor, or you're going to deliver talks, or you're a musician going to play a gig, or an artist going to present in an exhibition. Because the pandemic has led to big restrictions on travel and, and the movement of people in, in, in a literal sense, people haven't had to experience the need for new temporary work visas, new controls at the border, the possibility of actually being sent back when you arrive in, say, Frankfurt and say you're there to deliver some paid work for a client and then saying, well, you haven't got the correct paperwork, you're going to need to go home. So that's something that just hasn't been experienced yet uh, for quite obvious reasons, because we've all been stuck at home doing things over Zoom. In terms of other areas, if you look at different sectors, it seems that manufacturing has bounced back fairly well, and at least the big guys have, have worked out how to deal with the border to an extent. The food industry is still suffering when it comes to exports to the EU. There are far more controls there. And it's far more difficult. And I think the other area, which doesn't really show up so much in the numbers just because the volumes are much lower, is just small exporters, small companies who just don't have the capacity to deal with these new controls who have just removed themselves from the market. They've just said, well, we'll just stop selling to consumers in the, U in the EU. And it also has happened in the other direction. I think lots of people have found uh, when buying products from the EU now, it's become more complicated. There's been lots more caveats or it's been more difficult to get certain products if you're buying from, from smaller providers. But yes, the big one that's yet to be fully experienced is, is the restriction on movement of peoples for Brits going uh, in, in the other direction and, 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 and engaging in work. Dimitri, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think Sam sums it up really well. Uh, it's uh, 
I think a lot of a lot of especially Remain supporters keep looking for one or two like really huge, dramatic, inescapably Brexit-related things, which will finally get everyone to see the light and go, "Aha! I was wrong all along." You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Dominic Cummings like apologizing on the floor of Westminster for misleading the country, and it's it's never going to be that simple. Yeah. Brexit Brexit has made doing business with the EU, which is overwhelmingly the UK's largest trading partner, a lot more annoying in a hundred different ways that mostly fall on smaller businesses that don't have the money to bring in Ernst and Young to do their supply chain integrity, don't have the capital backup to, to introduce new systems. It hits you know smaller consultancies that can't manage the paperwork of going overseas, and that's been disguised. And there's also a lot of disguised uh, sort of potential business that doesn't happen because Brexit. So, 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 so what you don't see is someone who would have previously very happily hired an Edinburgh-based firm to do a deliver a certain service that now goes, you know what, actually, for, for a whole host of reasons, this is now complicated. So you get like funny things like there was a story where like they're shooting the crown and they and they only want actors that have EU passports because they're not sure that they can get like people with just British passports into the shooting locations in Europe often enough. So there's a lot of like weird things there that don't necessarily, they're not big, they're not splashy, they don't show up in statistics, but they, they hurt a bit and they hurt more than they would have if this hadn't happened. And that's the point, more than they would have. Because I think the thing that people misunderstand when talking about the impact of Brexit is everyone's looking, especially on the Remain side, looking for the UK to be poorer than it was before. But that's not going to happen. The UK is, you know, up and down, but probably going to keep getting richer and richer. The question is whether the UK is richer than it would have been otherwise, or poorer than it would have been otherwise if the UK had remained a member of the European Union. And we can never know this for certain. We've got we're dealing with an unknowable counterfactual. You sort of end up with a multiverse of options. You know, what what would the UK have looked like in Earth Two when? When the, when the UK had remained in the European Union. So you end up having to pull together all of these complicated economic models to try and work out what would have happened if the UK had stayed in the European Union. But ultimately, the UK is, you know, in five, ten years' time, it's going to be richer, most probably, unless there's some horrific event, than it was when we were EU members. And trade with the EU will probably be greater than it was when we were EU members because populations have increased. So it becomes sort of a very tedious argument with just people like me sort of doing charts. Uh, and, and perhaps people aren't going to get the sort of big, as Dimitri said, the big moment they expected, whereby everyone either has their beliefs and priors confirmed or, 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 or realizes the errors of their way. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
I love a chart myself. Just <laughs> a couple of other things. I mean, one of the many problems in, in the referendum campaign is Northern Ireland didn't get, I mean, it just didn't get mentioned at all by either side, just wasn't really there, with some exceptions, but it just wasn't a prominent feature of the campaign. And then obviously became a huge issue with the backstop and so on. Um, so I, I get, I'm wondering, where are we at with Northern Ireland at the moment? Where, where do you kind of, because it has, again, for maybe understandable reasons, obviously it was very prominent in the news earlier this year for because there were riots, but where are we at at the moment as you see it? It's tough. It's really rough. I mean, Northern, Northern Ireland is in a very interesting situation in which it's remained within the EU's single market for goods de facto and also de facto within the EU's customs territory with some caveats around its ability to qualify for UK free trade agreements, which it can under most circumstances. So this, so this has left Northern Ireland more integrated with the rest of the EU than uh, Great Britain, but it has led to the imposition of trade barriers for goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain, this so-called border in the sea. And the management of that has become incredibly politically contentious. And for one, because the Prime Minister promised this border would never exist, and here it is. Right, he took the choice. You had to put. You either had no border because the whole UK was fully aligned with the EU in lots of different areas, and that would restrict UK freedom. That would mean no borders anywhere. Great, but constraints on freedoms. So we didn't want that. Didn't want a border on the land uh, because there was views that that would be very problematic. So you can't put it there. So you end up with this situation with a border in the sea, Northern Ireland more integrated with the EU than the rest of the UK. And politically, that's difficult. There's actually lots of potential economic advantages for Northern Ireland of this. So all of a sudden, if you're doing certain uh, types of production or distribution it make it could make sense to locate in northern ireland if you're selling to both eu consumers and uk consumers because it has a foot in both markets but it has also led to these checks on goods entering northern ireland from great britain the uk is now trying to rewrite this arrangement to make it work more easily the eu doesn't want to so we're just essentially in this constant period of conflict in, and butting of heads between the EU and the UK. And this argument is just going to run and run and run. The UK has at times unilaterally extended grace periods without the consent of the EU, which has caused problems. They've now agreed to extend some grace periods. This is going to come up again at the end of September. It's just not great. And the problem is, if Northern Ireland is to benefit from this arrangement, you need political stability. And that's just not there at the moment, because you would not invest in Northern Ireland right now, because you have no idea what these arrangements will look like in a year's time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just add, it's a it's a bizarrely weird construct there at the moment, because mm -hmm. what you have is you have a goods border that is functionally in the middle of one country, the United Kingdom. That goods border has British officials applying the EU customs code and EU rules to goods traveling across on the understanding that they can kind of provide derogations and not do it as much if the good is clearly staying in Northern Ireland. That is a really, really weird state of affairs. And it is going to lead, as Sam said, to just perpetual friction because the UK's incentives from a political, but I suppose economic standpoint too, is to basically check as little as possible, to, to wave through as much as they can because they don't want the perception and the reality of friction on that border. While the EU is like watching them do this and has a legal document that says they actually shouldn't be waving through as much as they should and they shouldn't be offering these derogations and says, but you signed up to this. And so it's this perpetual slow burn of lawfare where 
the EU is going to use the dispute settlement mechanisms and stuff to, to raise these issues, and the two sides butting heads because they no longer agree, if they ever did, on what is on the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. They signed up to something the UK fundamentally does not agree with anymore. And there's just, you know, there's just no way to square that circle without a lot of yelling. Yeah, because the thing is, I do think there are technical solutions. I've written about them, Dimitri. You've 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 you've, you've tweeted about them at different times. Lots of people, lots of businesses, groups have suggested what you could do about extending this idea of not applying certain controls to goods so long as you can demonstrate the remaining in Northern Ireland to different regulatory mm -hmm. spheres, so as to allow for medicines, foods entering Northern Ireland, not to be caught up in much of the bureaucracy, but. Technical solutions is one part of that, but then you've just got this whole, the, the political incentives around this are just very warped in that it's even, you know, arguably in the UK government's political interest to keep fighting the EU on these interests because it keeps the issue live and you keep having this enemy, this other to point to and distract away from certain other domestically, politically contentious issues. And then on the EU side, they have demonstrated flexibility in different areas, but they're just looking at this saying, you're asking us to rewrite something you only agreed under a year ago, you know, or, or actually agreed just before that because of, it was part of the withdrawal agreement, but not so long ago. And you're already saying it doesn't work. You haven't even tried, you know, and, so, so, and, and you're also uh, not acknowledging that you signed up to it. You're pretending it had nothing to do with you. It's, so it's just it's just not nice. It's, 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 it's quite tiresome, actually. Just, just a couple of final things, because I've exploited your expertise for, for so long now. But just, just lastly, well, just penultimately, are there any benefits? Let's challenge the audience. I'm sure most of them probably on one particular side. So what are, the, are there any current benefits that Britain is experiencing from the specific Brexit deal that Boris Johnson negotiated? I mean, there are things that have happened that couldn't have happened otherwise. So the UK has an agreement in principle with Australia, uh, trade agreement there. It'll have an agreement in principle with New Zealand. And I'm referencing this agreement in principle because they're not actually finished yet. <laughs> so they're not actually enforced yet. But, but, but they will be. That's something the UK has done that it wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Will it compensate for the losses of Brexit and the new barriers we put in between the EU and the UK? No. But has it potentially led to some new opportunities for companies who are focused in those directions? Yes. The UK does now have the possibility to regulate in some different areas in a way that differentiates itself from the European Union. I wrote a piece recently looking at medical device uh, regulation. The EU's medical device regulation is a bit of a mess. The implementation has been very poor. The UK could choose to continue unilaterally recognising the EU's approach so as to ensure there's no disruption there but also look to other regulatory regimes and see if there's some approaches it could recognize there potentially with the US which could lead to certain medical devices entering the UK market more quickly but but the problem is I, I find on this is that the government talks a lot about freedom but it really struggles to articulate what it wants to do with it and why there will be benefits it's left in people like me just scrabbling around looking for some different things and saying have you thought about this um, and and and, and with, with the absence of that narrative, all we have to focus on are the negatives, at least in the immediate term. Dimitri. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, it's been fantastic for my career personally. Oh, yeah, me too. So if, if, yeah. Swiss, if Swiss trade consultants <laughs> are a core constituency of yours, fantastic. If you could just Brexit every four years or so, yeah. it's, it's been great. Um, on the off chance that my personal financial welfare isn't your key driving motivating factor... <laughs> Look, I think fundamentally the, the, the central argument of Brexit, if you strip away absolutely everything else, it is that 
the lives of UK citizens could be improved if the UK government was less constrained in policy and regulatory decisions. That was, if you kind of strip away all of the other nonsense, mm -hmm. that, is, that is the key point, that the, being in the EU imposed limits on what the UK government could do, whether that's on immigration, regulation, you name it, and life would be better if, if that wasn't the case. Now, as Sam said, the UK government has caught this car and is now sort of growling at it in confusion because on most of these things, it didn't necessarily have a particularly clear idea of how it would diverge, of what it would do with this freedom, as well as the costs of using that freedom of divergence um, in terms of its trading relationships and so forth. So in terms of benefits, the UK government is able to do more. That is, that is unequivocal. It can do more. The question, um, I mean, given your audience, uh, maybe not overwhelmingly Tory, might not draw a great deal of comfort from the fact that the Boris Johnson government is now less constrained. Um, I, I don't know if that's a cause for celebration among your viewers, um, but but that that freedom is there. So so, so that box is ticked. Um, the the question of okay, well now 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 you're free. Where do you want to go? Uh, has in large part baffled everyone except. Dominic Cummings, who seemed to really want to build DARPA for, in the UK for some reason. Um, but everybody else seems confused. Lastly, I mean, this is talking about the politics of a bit, I suppose. But do you think the problem in terms of scrutinising the impact of the specific Brexit deal that Boris Johnson and his team negotiated is many Remainers were quite, you've already kind of alluded to this, quite catastrophist. They were like... Mm -hmm any form of Brexit deal will be such a total calamity, economic Armageddon, that now it's quite difficult to, to talk about some of the more nu the nuances, but the, the genuine harmful impacts that this form of Brexit is having, because a lot of leavers will simply respond, you predicted the whole world would collapse, and it, it, it didn't. I mean, we have had a pandemic. And also, sure. Labour obviously voted for the Brexit deal. I mean, they did it on the basis. Uh, they claimed that, you know, it was that or no deal. But anyone who knows any anything to do with the Labour leadership knows that the reason they did it is because they they lost a lot of Leave supporters because of the shift to a second referendum uh, policy, which Keir Starmer was associated with. So they felt they had to, to compensate for that and avoid falling into a trap which made it look like they were trying to unpick Brexit. And now the other problem is because a lot of Remainers, perhaps before this, the People's Vote campaign claimed it wasn't originally, people don't realise this, it wasn't a, a pro-Remain campaign, it was agitating for a final say on a deal. But it always looked like Remainers were, were just constantly pushing in order to unpick Brexit. That was always the final destination. So now if people criticise the Brexit deal, it's easy for the government to frame it as what they're really trying to do here is get us back in the European Union. That's the, that's their end game. This is just a tactic of theirs. I don't. I mean, these are the politics of it, but I'm just wondering what, what's, you know, that's the argument, I suppose, that could be put in terms of the, the problems in scrutinising. What do you think? So my daughter is now storming around, so there's going oh, to be a bit blessed. of... A, a I love it. Love a bit of child drama. That will be. Yeah, I will let you get back to your daughter shortly as well. So, just as a last question, what do you think, Dimitri? Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Go first um, so, so kind of two things there. 
First, on the apocalyptic predictions, yeah, sure, people people made some apocalyptic predictions. I'm I'm kind of like most of us in the middle ground didn't, and it's like if you want to judge the like maybe this isn't such a good idea crowd by the nuttiest prediction of some hashtag follow back pro EU fanatic, then I get to judge Brexit by like what Daniel Hannan said would happen by now with like four other countries leaving the EU and Hull is the Silicon Valley of Europe. Um, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Um, so, so, so first of all, on the prediction side, yes, absolutely. Um, but, but yeah, no, I think that did do damage because there was this sense of like, there will be clear disasters that are unequivocally Brexit. And I don't think it was ever going to be that simple. On the political side, I'm, look, it's not really my role to tell anybody how to do anything on, on politics, but I sort of look at it and I think there's been a bit of a misjudgment. Even if you are an absolute fanatic who believes that rejoining the European Union is the number one objective of UK politics, then the only path to doing that is by defeating Boris Johnson and the Tories. The, 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 that's, that's, that's obvious. Um, and it's equally obvious that if anything attacks on Brexit or attempting to frame everything from a is this Brexit metric, to my mind, very clearly aren't working. And if anything, allow the government to pass on a bunch of bad things that are happening on its watch, whether that is, you know, crises in the NHS or crises in social care or empty supermarket shelves, by basically having the people who voted for Brexit throw them in front of that allegation, because that allegation, like in order, the premise to criticizing how the government has behaved in the last four years is like, admit you were wrong about Brexit. And once you've done that, we can criticize the government together. And that sets a really high bar for people on a really entrenched issue. When for me, the line is like, well, you said, you said the country should trust you to deliver Brexit and to manage the country. Now a whole bunch of bad stuff is happening. You control parliament, you control, uh, you're out of the European Union, you're no longer controlled by them, and, and bad things are still happening on your watch like quite a bit. Can we just, can we talk about that? That That's the issue. So that's, that's my like, th there's a reason I'm not a political commentator on, on UK politics. Um, but that that's kind of been my interpretation. It almost feels like the government is able to use Brexit as like soldier diving in front of diving in front of them on a lot of these issues. What do you think, Sam? I, I agree. I don't think the I think the catastrophe. I can't pronounce it. Catastrophizing. I know it's a tricky one. I was struggling I with it as well. But I'm a bit hungover, so that's my excuse. I, I'm Welsh. I don't know if that. <laughs> if that cuts across it, if that, if that gives me a way out. But I, yes, I can't. My Welsh it. heritage as well. We'll, go, we'll that, go for that. Yeah, that word is is causing me problems. But I don't. I don't yes, I don't think that that will, helps now. Insofar as people sort of predict it, we're predicting the end of the world, and of course that didn't happen. My my line on it was was largely things won't be as good as they could have been, but they'll still be better than you expect. You know, it's and 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 from my from my perspective, I, I, as with Dimitri, I try and avoid sort of party political type discussion and, and stick to policy. But I do think it's important when discussing the UK as someone who lives here is that I want things to be good. I really want things to be good and keep getting better because I live here. I've got a child. She's going to have to live here unless she moves somewhere else. You know, 
so, so, so constantly just going, well, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, and it's all because of Brexit. And you sort of think, well, some of these things are because of Brexit. And actually, there's some things the government could do that it's not doing to alleviate these. And we should certainly criticise that. And we should certainly make these suggestions and push on that policy. But just sort of saying, oh, someone fell over in the street, Brexit. I just yeah it just becomes a bit too much noise and and it becomes very difficult to make any sensible interventions and map a sensible way forward sam and dimitri you've been absolute superstars that was a real a real tour de force we've gone through we've covered a lot there which was brilliant <laughs> but you're but you've both been absolutely fantastic i've just been reading some of the comments and people have been extremely appreciative you've educated a lot of people um by the way and i should have plugged this at the beginning but do uh, subscribe to sam's newsletter which is most favored nation. So if you Google Sam Lowe, which is S A M L O W E, and then most favored nation, make sure you subscribe to that because you'll get even more wisdom <laughs> if that's possible than we've already had for the last. We, we also minutes. do so a Twitch. So we also do a show on Twitch together on trade. We're the only people doing trade policy. Do you? Yeah, do we? I'm getting involved with it. Go on, plug it, Dimitri. Go on, go to it. <laughs> so, uh, Sam, myself, and Anna Isaac, the economics editor of The Independent, do a once every two weeks, we do a show called All the Goods Trade Puns Were Taken, where we try to explain yeah. trade issues and why people should give a damn to an audience of dozen um, <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> I'm going to add to that dozen myself. <laughs> Uh, and bring down the quality of the dozen by doing so. Uh, but thank you both uh, a huge amount. I'll let Sam get to look after your daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, the Wi-Fi didn't collapse, by the way, so that was that was something because it was touch and go at the beginning. Uh, but thank you so much to both of you. You've been absolutely brilliant, and I will speak to you soon. Thanks, Thanks so much. Me. Take care. They were both fantastic. I learned myself a huge amount there, very educational. Um, this was something a lot of you wanted to hear about. I certainly didn't know the details, so... We now have them. We're fully educated. So thank you so much to all of you for either if you're watching live or listening on the podcast. Uh, August, I mean, to be fair in August, just uh, just quickly. Normally, sometimes I do a rant, but I'm too scared the Wi-Fi will collapse midway through with me looking angry, which is not what we want. Uh, so I will. So just to explain, in August, quite a lot of stuff was happening. I got COVID, which was unfortunate. Uh, there was a wedding pileup going on. So I'm now on my third weekend having a wedding. Uh, I, had, I went abroad for, 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 to Malta, which was exciting. First time I left the country in over two years. Uh, but also I'm finishing a book, The Alternative uh, and, and How We Build It, which will be coming out next year. But I do need to finish it. So the reason in August we weren't as active as we'd, we had been is for all those reasons together. Uh, but I don't have COVID anymore. So that's good. And we have loads and loads of content coming up. We've got a documentary, as I said, about who owns Britain, uh, which you support on patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84. Just three quid, whatever. That will allow our brilliant team to make that video, which takes so much resources and time you wouldn't believe. We're also filming a documentary at Labour Party Conference and Tory Party Conference. Can't wait. Always a highlight of my year in my natural habitat, Conservative Party Conference. So I will, I will, I will be there uh, and it will be... It will be an interesting video. All I'd say is I don't know what I did in a previous life, but when I'm at the Tory conference, I certainly am. I certainly am paying for something is all I'm saying. Something very, very bad. But I will be there uh, for you. For, for my, that's, that's how much I love all of you in this audience. I'm prepared to go to Tory party conference for you. Uh, so, uh, so we've also got loads of interviews coming up. We've got loads of videos generally coming up about the war and terror. 
uh, about the Labour Party, about the Tories. Obviously, they're in power, so we need to talk about them, as we've been doing in this show. Uh, so we've got a huge amount coming up, lots of very exciting interviews. So we will be back next Sunday. I am going to another wedding next weekend, but it, it will be in London, so it'll be less complicated. Uh, and I will now say thank you to everyone who supported us on Super Chat. John McKenzie, Peter O'Donovan, Zebdi Beervan, uh, Mitching Maleko, uh, Lauren Kelly, and Tadeusz Campwell, who says the first... Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, fun fact, the first I heard of you was your video a few days before Brexit warning it could be lost. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I get I get lots of things wrong. And I have to say, as a political commentator over the last few years, I mean, it's been... I don't know if anyone's watched Gravity, the film, uh, in which basically in the first half an hour, uh, they're hit by debris from a Russian satellite, which then everything collides and goes, it's all chaotic and an absolute nightmare. That's obviously been the last few years of politics in this country. Uh, and being able to predict or, or, or commentate on things uh, in, that, in that period, after everything we've gone through, Brexit, Trump, the Labour Party civil war, and now the pandemic, it's tricky. But I, I was, in fact, as one right-wing commentator pointed out, the only newspaper columnist who predicted Brexit would happen. I did a video which you can watch uh, if, you, if, you, if you go into YouTube after this. Owen Jones, uh, uh, Brexit is going to happen. I think it's something like that. And I just went through what would happen. And unfortunately, all of those prophecies were pretty accurate, as you will see when you watch the video. Um, wow. I remember that day. It was actually grim because I remember sitting, I was in King's Place, the Guardian's headquarters. And just before we started the video, I got a breaking news alert on my phone saying that a Labour MP had been attacked in Yorkshire. And of course, that was the far right murder of Joe Cox. It has been a very long few years of tumult, often pretty gruesome tumult at that. Uh, but it's been brilliant, brilliant show. Thanks for, as I said, I, I am a bit fragile. It has been a wedding, but we got through this uh, thanks to my phone, which is perched over there as a hotspot. But as I said, the channel will now be back up and running, the videos, the podcasts. Uh, so thanks for putting up with us over the last month and a half for all the reasons I said. Uh, but that's it for me. Lots of love, everyone. I will see you next Sunday at 12 o'clock or if you're listening on the podcast, whenever. Uh, and I will see you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.